0: Good morning, church. Our scripture reading today comes from 1 Peter 2, verses 18 to 25. So find that in your Bible or the app that you may be using. Please follow along with me as I read. We'll begin with verse 18. Servants. Be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself
1: Well, hopefully you're at 1 Peter, where Richard just read the text for us, and we need to do a little bit of review, because I saw some new faces. We are journeying through this epistle nestled in the latter part of the New Testament, and so as we do, let me just give us a little bit of a review. We've got a couple slides here to show you this morning, maybe, maybe not. Uh, Here we go. The first of these, no, we need to go back. Uh, uh, (laughs) This is, all right, here we go. We looked at the first part of chapter one as our glorious salvation, and we looked at the benefits from that. It was a promise that was given. It was a praise granted. It was a privilege revealed. And out of that glorious salvation, Peter lays out four commands, and you can see those. One is to hope. Another is a call to be holy. Another is a call to fear God. And the fourth there is to love not only the Lord, but one another. It's those commands which lead us into the second section that we're in now here in the epistle. Starting in chapter two, verse 11, going all the way to 511, this is the content of what Peter needed to convey to these believers that are scattered in what is now modern Turkey. And that is taking those four commands and applying them to daily life. And last week we looked at the key verses Let's look at this. It's chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. And these are the overarching verses for all that he then lays out in this section based on those four commands. Peter writes, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to keep away from fleshly desires that do battle against the soul. So our readers, they're scattered abroad, but also also they know this world is not our home. He says, maintain good conduct among the non-Christians so that though they now malign you as wrongdoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God when he appears. He takes those verses and he launches us into, uh, first was the issue with the government, which we looked at last week. And today we're gonna be looking at servants, slaves. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you and we thank you for your word. We thank you that these ancient words that were penned over 2,000 years ago aren't just some concocted fable. Some group of individuals who wanted to start a new religious movement, but they are born out of you because Second Timothy states, all scripture is God-breathed. It is you that has spoken this in to existence. Why? So we, we can know how to glorify you, Now we can have a relationship with you. Fathers, we go to the text today, guide our study of these verses that are nestled here in 17 all the way through, or 18 through 25. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you would turn to verse 18, we're now addressing slaves. He dealt with the government, now he comes to slaves. And hearing the words that were just read, I don't know about you, but uh, they're a little troublesome to hear. They're not politically correct. They seem very harsh. You know, slaves obey your masters, even if it's harmful, even if it hurts, obey. And so the question is, how do we respond to this? For those who attack Christianity, this is where often they'll throw the darts, and that is they will attempt to discredit Christianity, especially the New Testament, because they'll say it endorses slavery. And we got a problem here. And, and with that as well, if we believe that all scripture is profitable, how then do we apply verses 18 to the end of this section 25 to our own lives? So we have two major issues to address before we even launch into the text. And so this morning, I thought it would be helpful to highlight a couple things as you're taking notes, hopefully, because we'll have a quiz at the end. First of all, we need to keep in mind that slavery in the Greco-Roman world was not the same as slavery that existed in the United States. You say, well, how, how can you say that? Well, I'll give you several reasons. First of all, slavery in the first century was not based upon race. In fact, it's estimated that one-third of the urban population were slaves in the Greco-Roman world. One-third. It wasn't based on race. Secondly, there was an opportunity for slaves to be highly trained, educated. In fact, there was an entire set of laws on how masters were to treat their slaves In the first century Nero married one of his slaves so there was opportunities in fact slaves were normally paid for their services in the first century and could expect eventually to purchase their freedom even becoming a Roman citizen so unfortunately when we think of the slavery that we've known in this country you cannot superimpose that on slavery of the first century now I'm not denying their legal status, their social standing, and opportunity for economic independence was clearly lower than others who owned slaves, those in society. But the question still remains, doesn't it? Why didn't the New Testament, you know, take this dog in the backyard and shoot it? Why did they allow allow for slavery? Why does Peter seem to endorse it here? What do you do with this? Well, first... We need to remember the early church was far more concerned with the bigger picture, and that was the gospel. Secondly, I would argue slavery was part of the Roman legal system, a system that we just saw earlier in 1 Peter is recognized that it was ordained by God. Christianity is not a reason for sin and rebellion. And again, slavery was vastly different in the first century. Now, there are some scholars today who want to dismiss that, and I would argue for the attempts of trying to discredit the Old and New Testament. Thirdly, advocating for the removal of slavery could have resulted in individuals bracing Christianity for the wrong reasons. Uh, that's proposed by Harold Honer in his commentary on Ephesians. And finally, I think we need to be careful. Scripture never commends Slavery. It never says it's an institution established by God. Marriage is, we'll get to that. we got the missions conference, but after the missions conference, we'll get back to 1 Peter. We'll be talking about marriage because that's the next section that Peter addresses. But he will state it's an institution by God. He never says that, Paul doesn't, of slavery. In fact, they will argue it's an invention, I would argue, of humanity And so the New Testament regulates the institution of slavery, as we're going to see, first century slavery, but it does not commend it, per se. And I think we need to keep that in mind. So, whether you agree or disagree, I think those are a couple issues we have to understand. One, again, slavery in the first century was not like slavery, we know. Secondly, there are reasons why the New Testament writers did not call for the cessation of slavery. And then then that comes to, well, then how do we apply this text? There certainly needs to be caution here. And many will immediately take this to an employee-employer relationship. And I think the overarching principles definitely are there. Why? Because again, first century slavery was the common employee-employer practice in its day. And so most scholars, and I would concur, argue that some general principles can be applied to employees so that's where we are and we come now to the text so let's look at this verses 18 through 20 he gives some overarching principles when it comes to submission he says slaves be subject to your masters with all reverence the first thing we see here is that submission is to be with all reverence Now, I'm reading out of the Net Bible, and I noticed that when the ESV was read, it says, with all respects to your masters. The problem I have with that rendering is the reverence here is not, I don't think linked to the masters. I think it's linked to the Lord. Every time the term is used of reverence in 1 Peter, it's in reference to the Lord. 1.17, 3.2, 3.6, 3.14, 3.16. It always is that you fear God not fearing man, that's never seen. In fact, we saw that in the verse in 17, honor all people, love the family of believers, fear God. So there it is. And so I would argue the issue here is that we are subject, it's based on a reverence for the Lord and what he has done. And I guess again, the immediate context, I would argue, also supports this as well as we've seen in his discussion of the government where he says it's for the Lord's sake that we obey Caesar, the king. And so I would argue submission is to be with all reverence. Secondly, it's not based upon whether the master is nice or not. They may not have gotten the master of the year award. In fact, notice what he says with all reverence, not only to those who are good and gentle, yea, like those, right? But also to those who are, and watch this term, perverse. It's loaded, you know. Not the ones that are somewhat not nice. No, the the term is someone who's corrupt. In fact, what we're seeing here is a slave can't pick and choose. We're to be—it's all inclusive. Philippians two, Paul writes: Do all things without murmuring and arguing, so that you may be blameless and pure, children of God without blemish, though you live in a crooked and perverse. Society in which you shine as lights in the world. And so Peter's saying, listen, submission, it's in the fear of the Lord. Secondly, it, it, it's not based upon your master's character, it's to the Lord. Now, as we saw last week, based on verse 13, a servant is to obey except when it's a command to sin. And you say, well, what basis do you have for that? Look at Joseph, right? He obeys Potiphar and does all the Potiphar asks, but when his wife attempts to seduce him, who is also his master, his master's wife, he says, no, I cannot do this. That, that's wrong. And so he flees. He reaps the consequences of it, but I also say the blessing of being walking in obedience to the Lord. So God's laws trump human laws at all, at all times, uh, but we are to submit Whether that guy is a louse or not a louse, we submit. And we're going to get to this when we talk about bosses in a moment, or teachers. So just bear with us. So submission, it's to be with all reverence. It's not based upon your master's character. Third, I would argue, it's driven by one's faith, as stated there in verse 19. Notice he says, For this finds God's favor The term there is also what we use for grace. And it bookends this section, by the way, because you see it at the end of verse 20 as well. It's because of conscience towards God that someone endures hardships. What's he talking about? He's not talking about a stoic, self-motivated tenacity, but a trusting awareness of God's presence and his unfailing care. Grudem writes, it is the confidence that God will ultimately right all wrongs, which enable a Christian to submit to an unjust master without resentment, rebellion, self-pity, or despair. He's right. And so as Peter's writing to these, these folks who are scattered throughout modern Turkey, he said, listen, you submit, as a slave, you submit to your master, and it's driven by one's faith in God. That's why you can endure. This is for what credit is if you, in verse 20, if you sin and are mistreated, endure it. But if you do good and suffer, and so endure, and by the way, one-fourth of all references to suffering in the New Testament are found in this little book. One-fourth. Our audience, they're, they're, they're undergoing a lot of persecution. They're undergoing suffering because they've taken a stand for Christ. And Peter is writing to them, and he's saying, yeah, and you got to keep pressing on. you got to be kidding. I'm ready to revolt. He says, no, you can't. Why? Because you look to the future promises of God, the favor that comes, the grace that comes. Again, he mentions it twice. The unconditional command for slaves to obey their masters is rooted in the promise that God will reward them. He will show favor and noting that, then we could argue one's obedience is not to win over the master or receive the best servant of the year award. One's obedience is the, the, for the purpose of receiving God's favor, which is vastly, it, it's like Peter's turned everything upside down. Paul talks about as a, a slave, you don't do it so you can get, you know, you look good before the master. You do it because you want to honor the Lord. And Peter's taking that same idea here. And what's the reward? What's the implication? The future inheritance. Look at chapter 1. Go back to chapter 1 of 1 Peter. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his great mercy, he gave us into a new birth, into a living hope through the resurrection. That is into an inheritance, imperishable, undefiled, unfading. It's reserved in heaven for you, who by God's power are protected through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed. And so he says, Listen you you got to look to the future here in your obedience. Well, you think, Peter, thank you for that. But then he really takes and grabs the juggler in the next few verses. Because what he does is he says, let me give you an example very close to home. And that's your Savior. Because he says in verse 20, for what, or verse 21, for it is this that you were called since Christ also suffered for you. Are you greater than your heavenly master? God has called you to this, which is the same term he used of our salvation earlier in this epistle. You were called to an eternal inheritance. You've been called to this. Bummer, right? Oh, you really? Yeah. God's called you to this. And he is expecting you to follow after him. And so he says, uh, God is not sadistic. Why does he do this? So he can draw us near to him. And we're gonna see that here in a minute. And, And Christ isn't sitting, God is not sitting on a lofty tower that has never experienced what it is like to be on this globe. He understands, the text tells us, he left an example for you to follow. The term there, for example, is, is, is tracing letters. It's, 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 you know, when you were young and you'd follow an A and then a B. You're tracing it, that's the idea. He's, he's left for you, you to follow him in his steps. Suffering, there's several implications here. Suffering is not a detour, it's part of God's plan. You're like, man, I should have chosen a different church to go to this morning. That's a bummer, right? Jerry Bridges, uh, he states, that which should distinguish the suffering of believers from unbelievers is the confidence that our suffering is under the control of an all-powerful and all-knowing God. Our suffering has meaning and purpose in God's eternal plan, and he brings us or allows us to come into our lives only that which is for his glory and for his good. Remember what's, what he said earlier, this is God's favor that you're looking to. So you tie this all together. And, and secondly, suffering is part of the example that Christ left for us, as Peter highlights. It's ironic, isn't it? Remember, this is the same guy who rebuked Jesus when he said he was gonna suffer. <laughs> Peter, Peter, Peter. Peter. The master has to suffer. The, the, the Messiah has to suffer. He's got to be crucified, and he's got to rise again. It's all part of it. John 15, and in in Jesus states, if the world hates you, be aware. I, they hated me first. You shouldn't be shocked. If you belong to the world, the world would love you. If you're one of them, oh, this is great. Misery loves company. Sin just loves to wallow with other sinners. <laughs> they don't want to be shown up. I remember the story of uh, Billy Graham going golfing with a group and this guy threw his golf clubs down and left and said, I'm tired of him preaching at me. They said, what, did he try to share Christ or what? He's, and found out Billy Graham never said a word. He was just living for Christ, showing grace. And John says, they don't want your, he said, they're not going to love you because you're not one of them. However, because you don't belong to the world, I chose you out of the world. For this reason, the world hates you. Remember what I told you a slave is not greater than his master. Christ knows. You say, well, you don't understand what I'm going through. Christ does. He's walked this. And what we see here Christians will suffer because it's the example that Christ left for us. Votie Bachem states, suffering is common for all. However, persecution, which is a form of suffering, can be avoided. All you have to do is compromise. Oh, is it's dead on. And so, Peter, he says, we do this for the favor of God that we seek, but we also are obedient and we submit because Christ has given us that example and is expected. Then Peter does something very interesting. In fact, I've just gotta show you this little chart because in the next four verses, he will cite Isaiah four times, he will allude to Isaiah at least four times, all from 52 and 53, Say, why is that significant? It's the suffering servant, it's the servant songs of Isaiah. And I don't know about you, at first I think that is really odd. I mean, in the midst of this behaving before the government and slaves and marriage, you, you, you take us to Isaiah? Yes, because what the New Testament writers do time and time again is show us the importance of theology with our ethics. It must drive it. So Peter is intentionally taking us to the Old Testament. The suffering servant, which is found in Isaiah's, 52 and 53, was part of God's promise to restore his exiled people to himself, and the servant himself is declared to be exalted, though he must suffer. And so to a group of recipients that Peter's writing to, he goes, I know you're suffering, I know you're exiled, but all oh, the promises that we can find, even seen in our greatest example, Christ. Christ. And so I want you to see, this is just so powerful, what he does here. As we look at this text, as we do this, I I, I have to give this is free today. It's not part of the sermon. It's a side note. Do you know the suffering servant motif that's seen with Christ is the one who is to come and suffer for us is found five times in the New Testament. And every time they're on Peter's lips. Twice in Acts 3 when he preaches. Twice in Acts 4 when he prays. And now here in First Peter. Some have argued he is the one who best understands and developed this connection from Isaiah. And I, I can't help because here's Peter who has, uh, he's endured a lot. He understands probably more than most what Christ went through. Having been there on the forefront many occasions and so when we get to verse 22 here, as we look at this, again, the one who rejected Christ needing to suffer now understands the importance of Christ's suffering. He says in verse 22, he committed no sin nor was deceit found in his mouth. He quotes from Isaiah 53 verse 9. It's a powerful text because what it, it reiterates what we see elsewhere in the New Testament. Christ is sinless, Our Savior was, he knew no sin, 2 Corinthians. Hebrews 4, he's without sin. 1 John and Christ was no sin. What does that mean? What it means is Jesus did nothing ever that displeased God. I love the song we sang earlier. Father, not my will, but your will be done. He did nothing that displeased his father. He never violated the Mosaic law and no way failed to show his life at all times is one that wasn't there to glorify God. That was what he sought to do. And so what's the principle? How do we relate this to what Peter's trying to convey to his readers? I, thought, I wrote down the principle is here, he who suffers must be innocent in, of all wrongdoing, whether in actions or words. That's true, by the way, if you're a slave or not. <laughs> but Christ has laid it out, and by how he has gone without sin is an example for us that we need to handle this as well. Now, Peter's not downplaying the significance of Christ's crucifixion. Yes, it was unique. We'll talk about that in a minute. But the example is there as well. Verse 23, he then gives us four allusions to Isaiah 52 and 53 did not retaliate. He didn't judge. He um, was treated unjustly, but he, you see all of these connections that are playing out here. I think in 1 Peter 3, later Peter will state, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. And Matthew 5 says, love for one's enemies demonstrate God's confidence in God's willingness and ability to vindicate. In other words, silence is golden. <laughs> silence is golden as a slave. Uh, not silence from fear or resentment or resignation, but it, it's silence that's born out of courage, out of compassion, confidence in the Lord, and a patient endurance. True power and strength to suffer justly without retaliating is what we're addressing here in the text. Notice, I love the line that he gives there in verse 23, but committed himself to God. There is the standard for the slave. We are committed to God. Th- that's what we look to. That's what drives us. And so, he, the principle he is here, he must suffer without responding, the slave, in any ungodly manner, thus without cursing or insulting the master. That's true if you're a student or an employee, you can't lash out. He who suffers unjustly is to entrust his life to him who judges justly. Vance Havner made this statement. He said, I I hear a lot today about grandstand seats in glory, but I don't hear much about the baptism of Christ's suffering. We're wearing a lot of medals these days, but not many scars. Hmm. We're called to suffer. And in verse 24, he then quotes Isaiah 53. And he says, he himself bore our sins. This is loaded. This is glorious, this text, by the way. He he says, he is the one who offered up the sacrifice. There's a 50 cent word here, and that's called substitutionary atonement. Substitutionary atonement. You say, what in the world? What it means is Christ suffered as a substitute for us. That is, instead of us being the one who died on the cross for our own sins, he died for us, resulting in an advantage for us of paying what he did for our sins. We cannot atone, make right, our crud. There's only one way, and that was taking someone who had no sin, who died for us, and that took a God-man that took Christ. Mark 10, for even the Son of Man came, what? To give his life a ransom for many. And, and Nestled in this is the heart of the gospel Is what Peter's laying out for us 2 Corinthians 5.21 Christ was a substitute for his people Making us morally and spiritually well And I love Well, love is one way to describe it But Peter highlights something that's very significant He said, in his body on the tree He uses a Greek term that you would expect That's used the word for cross Uh Uh-uh he uses the word for wood. And you go, why? Because Deuteronomy states in 21, cursed is the one who hangs on a tree. Peter's highlighting this one who set an example for us suffered for us. He paid the price. One scholar writes, in the darkest night of the soul, Christians have something to hold on to that Job never knew. We know Christ crucified. Man, are you struggling under suffering? Well, look at the cross. Christians have learned that there seems to be no other evidence of God's love. They cannot escape the cross. He who did not spare his own son but gave him for us, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things, Romans 8? When we suffer, there will sometimes be a mystery, but there will also be faith, yes? If our attention is focused more on the cross and on the God of the cross than on the suffering itself. And, and he's not done in 24. He then quotes from Isaiah 53. He says, by the wounds you were healed. And it's interesting. Notice <clears throat> what he states here. He says, by the wounds you were healed, which is intriguing to me because he, he's, saying, he's personalizing it. It's not just physical. It was spiritual healing that was required. And here's the principle. He who suffers unjustly is nevertheless to persevere in a life of righteousness and correct action. Why? Because Christ's sufferings have freed him from his formal, sinful way of life. Do you know the freedom from guilt? Have you longed to have healing of the soul? And you've tried everything this world can offer. You've eradicated it with chemo, you've tried everything, and nothing seems to bring a healing to the inner workings of the heart. That's Christ. That's why he came. That's why he died. Come to the cross. Embrace this one who is here. Who And and this leads us to verse 25. Who is the shepherd? Because in the midst of the suffering, we're reminded again that we have a shepherd. Isaiah 53, we were going away like sheep. I mean, we we were wandering. But you now have turned back to the shepherd. And I, I love this. John 10, what does Jesus say? I am the good shepherd. I care for you. And I can't help but think of John 21. Remember Peter? He's denied the Savior. Christ appears to him. And what does he say? Do you love me? And Peter goes, yeah. What what does Christ say to Peter? Feed my sheep. Care for them. Peter knows what the shepherd is like. He knows what it means to be cared by. And he understands, and so again, the principle here is that we see as he who suffers should not lose sight of the total confidence that we have in God, a God who himself promises to protect. In the tears of life, where we experience in those, all the more we experience what it means that Jesus is our good shepherd. If it wasn't for the sufferings, I dare say we probably wouldn't know what an incredible God that cares so deeply for us it allows us in the suffering to know we have a God who cares and he vindicates and our focus isn't on the suffering but it's on the glory of our Savior and you see that the guardian of your souls Peter says I've been having problems with my back and so I went to this uh, cryo, cryo, cryo machine I think is how you say it cryo machine, which is where they freeze you practically to death. You may know that you go into this chamber. and I mean, it was so cold. And the guy lowers the window goes, now focus on me. Just focus here. I'm like, turn the thing off, right? You know, but he just said, breathe. Just keep focusing. Keep looking at me. Uh, I'm better because I was completely frozen. I was all frostbit now. So yeah, I'm going great. That's what Peter's trying to say, in the midst of the suffering, focus on Christ. Look who we have. I say, so you say, well, how? How do we apply this to us? I'm not a slave. Well, let me give you three principles that I think directly relate from this text to our lives today. First of all, there in your notes, our commitment to the Lord must govern our conduct in all earthly relationships. All that we do or don't do, it's because it's our focus on the Lord. Our relationship should find a behavior that's driven by a desire to do God's will. Where has God placed you? A particular school with a particular teachers? A particular profession that if you were honest wasn't the dream job you had imagined? A particular neighbor (laughs) in your neighborhood? None of it's by chance. It's by God's sovereignty. My father worked for years at a company that did Dirty Pool. They increased his quota but diminished his territory. He was on commission. And he watched his salary do this over several years. Monies that should have been his, commissions that disappeared. But I watched my dad. He was faithful to the Lord. He did his job to God's glory. And what a legacy to observe that. 1 Timothy 6. Those who are under the yoke as slaves must regard their own masters as deserving of all or full respect, even if they're perverse. Paul says they will prevent the name of God. This will prevent the name of God and Christian teaching from being discredited. Take a stand. And in the midst of suffering and when you're wondering, man, I don't know if I can work for this guy one more day. This gal is just something else. Look to Christ. As employees, let her be, or as students, we're called to serve with a singleness of heart, not a duplicity in our disposition or act. Ephesians 6, slaves, obey your human masters with fear and trembling in the sincerity of heart as to, and here's the clencher, Christ. Not like those who do their work only when someone's watching. (laughs) You've worked with those people, right? Yes, as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. Wow. So let me ask you a few questions. Do I regularly thank God for my job or education? Whether it's a student, a scientist, or social worker, wherever God's placed you, Do I properly respect those at work in authority over me, even those with religious, political, or moral convictions that are vastly different than mine? Do I work heartily in whatever vocation I'm placed, knowing that my service is to the Lord? Do I work hard even when the boss or the teacher isn't watching? Do I strive to have a good reputation with my coworkers or classmates, Do I refrain from cutting any moral corners on my job or at school? Do I refrain from conversations that are critical, unjustly so, of a teacher or a a boss? Are my work habits sloppy? Do I attempt to produce work half-heartedly? Am I on time or am I often tardy? Do I remind myself regularly that my job, performance, whatever, in general attitude is to bring glory to God? These are just some questions to be asking. And they're convicting, so we'll move on. But here's, those are two. Let me give you one more. Our response to persecution and suffering speaks volumes. Our actions and our words must display Christ. You cannot have Christianity without a cross. We cannot enjoy the presence of Christ without dying to self. And we cannot experience eternity with our Savior if we fail to take up our cross. In the little gem of a book, The Loveliness of Christ, by the former Scottish minister Samuel Rutherford, he writes, and listen to what he says, I find crosses Christ-carved work that he makes out for us and that with crosses, he fashions us into his own image, cutting away the pieces of our self-absorption and our corruption. Lord, cut. Lord, carve. Lord, wound. Lord, do anything that may perfect the Father's image in us and make us meet for glory. <laughs> so this morning, we need a group of believers, employees, students, that submit, why? With all reverence to their Lord. The one who suffered for us, set an example for us, and is seeking to shower his grace upon us. What an example we have in Jesus. Father, we come to you. It's easy to read this text and put it into the first century and say, well, I, I'm not a slave, I, I can't relate to that, or to dismiss it because it doesn't fit the cultural sensitivity to the topic today, not recognizing there's a vast difference between what we saw in the 1800s in this country and 17 versus what was there in the first century. And fail to see that in there's so many connections In our own lives, of being an employee or being a student, that we are called to follow hard after the one who has suffered dearly for us, leaving example, our blessed Savior, our Shepherd, Jesus. Lord, help us to keep our eyes on Him, even in the midst of the crud of life, when it's so easy to want to retaliate. It's so easy to to want to cut corners. Everyone's doing it. (laughs) Everyone's cheating on the test. Everyone's, no, we're called to live holy lives as royal priesthood, ones that are possessed by you. We are yours. We are your possession, and Father, we thank you all because of Christ in whose name